What would it take for Jesus to radically transform your life? I mean, that's why you're here this morning, right? What would it take for Jesus to change you? I hope you didn't just come to sing some songs and to open up a dated book, but but to have your life impacted by being here this morning. So what does it take for Jesus to transform you? As I was praying and thinking this morning about uh, Marco, because he's getting ready, he actually just left this morning with a youth team. I was reminded that uh, I was probably 13 years old, the summer before eighth grade, and, and I was getting ready for a mission trip like Marco's taking some of our students on today. And as I was on that trip, as I had opportunities to begin to serve people and, and to gather with other students from across the country and, and from other churches to start to hear and to see what Jesus was doing in their lives, I began to understand that maybe there's something more than just showing up on Sunday mornings. And so as I served elderly people, as I, as I worked in food banks, as, as I did these things on this mission trip that I was able to take, then I started to see that maybe Jesus had more to offer. Maybe there really was something to to the things that I'd been taught in Sunday school. Maybe there was something that actually had an impact on my life and and then gathering in the evenings to worship and to pray and to to hear the stories of what other people were experiencing. I began to be changed myself. I began to get this sense that that Jesus really was the way, the truth, and the life. This sense that, that really Jesus was someone that I wanted to follow and dedicate my life to following. Now, if we're honest, there's a lot of competition for that, isn't there? I mean, when I was 13, it was girls and, and girls on computer screens and, and whatever other things that could distract me. But now, I mean, as an adult, there are so many more promises and really false promises to try to distract me and pull me in and give me the sense that this is my place of solace. This is where I'm gonna find hope. This is where I'm gonna find peace. We are entering a political season, right? We've just started to, to wade into the waters that are gonna get murky and dark and chaotic, I'm very certain over the next several months, as people start to make promises, as politicians stand on stages and, and tell you that this party, that this platform, that this policy, this is the thing that's gonna give you the life that you've always wanted. This is what you need to place your hope in. This candidate, this is the candidate that's gonna change everything for you. This is the candidate that's gonna help you get back to where you remember life being, or it's gonna help you go to where you never thought life could be. This is the policy, this is the law, this is the party. This is the power that you need to give to these people because they are going to rescue you from this chaos of culture around us. The politicians want your devotion. The politicians want you to put their hope, put your hope in them. And if it's not politicians, it's companies. Right? It's products and services. This, these are the shoes that you need to wear. These are the clothes that you need to wear. They're going to give you the confidence to go into that office, to do that presentation, to, to tell people exactly what it is that they need to hear so that you can get that promotion. And if the promotion, you get the raise. And with the raise, you get the car. And then you have the status and the notoriety and the comfort and the vacations that you've always wanted. And it just takes the right shoes the right jeans, or a nice suit. And if it's not just the companies, honestly, it's social media, right? It's, it's people that we went to high school with or college with, it's coworkers, it's friends, it's neighbors, it's people that, that we don't even really interact with all that much, but we see it on social media and they're the ones taking the trips, right? This summer you've watched them. It seems like every other week, they're someplace new. How can they afford that? Doesn't anybody work anymore? And their parents, well, their parents aren't interfering with their lives. They're just 
supporting them and encouraging them. And their kids, their kids are doing everything right, right? They're straight A students. They're on the honor roll and they're in sports and they're musicians and they're writing all kinds of play. Like they're just, they're five years old and they're amazing. There's a lot of things vying for our attention, things that want us to, dev- want us to give our whole life devoted to, right? To give it over to them to trust in these politicians, to trust in these companies, to trust even in just the the image that someone else is trying to portray about themselves so they can get a few more likes, a few more comments, and probably just make you jealous so they can feel better about themselves. So what would it take for Jesus to transform your life? As we look at the story in Luke, we're gonna read about a man named Zacchaeus. And we're going to learn about this guy who has a radical transformation because he is stirred by the generous grace of God. And the generous grace of God stirs radical repentance. So you can follow along if you have your Bible open to Luke chapter 19. We're going to start reading in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, He was a chief tax collector and was rich. I looked up the word in Greek for rich. It's plusios. It means he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So let's set the scene. At this point in Jesus's ministry, he's on a pilgrimage to conclude in the city of Jerusalem. Now Jericho is a city on the outskirts of the nation of Israel to the south. And so what Jesus is doing throughout the next several chapters is traveling into the capital city to be there at the time of Passover and at the time of Passover, ultimately to make himself the sacrificial lamb, to die on the cross, to cover over our sins by his blood, to bring atonement, to bring peace with God, to bring reconciliation between people and God. That's the gospel. That in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we have a hope to be reunited with the creator in whose image we bear and whose and in whom our rebellion has pushed us away from. But Jesus wants us to be with him. He came so that we could be with him. Now, as he travels into Jericho, Jesus has a reputation that's preceded him. He spent years teaching, refuting, and arguing with the lawyers, that is the people who knew the law, the people who understood the Old Testament scriptures better than anyone you could imagine, memorizing whole books of the scripture like we could not even try to. We're too distracted and too busy to do that kind of thing but they were dedicated to it. And so Jesus would argue with them, not in some sort of prideful way, but in humility 
and in wisdom, teaching things that people had never quite understood or never quite heard. Not only did his reputation for the way that he spoke precede him, but the things that he could do, the miracles that he would perform, the healings that he could bring to people, and just even the people that he would allow to come near him even his own disciples that followed him everywhere he went, people started to talk about Jesus. And so this is years into his ministry, two, two and a half years into his ministry, maybe even three, at the near end, Jesus has this reputation that draws crowds. The miracle worker, the, the one who's preaching with authority, the one who understands God's word in some unique way and yet is proclaiming God's kingdom, is telling people to come and be a part of this, the miracle worker that they want to go and see. And as he enters Jericho, there is one man, Zacchaeus, who has heard about Jesus and he must see for himself. And so he goes and he's not the only one. There's a crowd that as Jesus walks into uh, the road, walks down the road and, and into the city, Zacchaeus is coming to him. And he, we really don't understand, but there's three things uh, that we want to know about, excuse me. There's three things that the story tells us about Zacchaeus. Help us understand what he's experiencing. The first is this, Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. Now he's come, he's heard about Jesus and he goes and, and he wants to see him, but Zacchaeus is a tax collector. Is there anybody that works for the IRS in here? Great, we can speak freely. <laughs> so April 15th, right? Whether it's that exact date or just the months that lead up to it, it's a time of frustration, confusion, maybe a little bit of anger and, and all of that to say anxiety for most of us, right? The idea of us having to figure out how much we made and how much we gave and how much whatever other things you have to figure out or honestly just to figure out what website you should use. But that's how we do taxes here. See, in the ancient times, taxes were run a little bit differently. And the way it worked was this. Remember that Israel is an occupied region of the Roman Empire. They have very little to no rights. They have people who've been placed into government positions in that region, like Pontius Pilate, who have authority. They have governors in control and they're trying to keep the order. They put soldiers in there so that there's no rebellions that would uh, refute the work of the empire. But what the taxes do the taxes draw the resources out of these regions, bring them into the capital city of Rome and continue to support the ever-expanding empire of the emperor to support his lavish lifestyle, to support the lifestyle of the elite and the ruling class. But these regions, well, these regions weren't taken care of by any means. The best they could hope for was a road that might be built to go through for trade. And so you can imagine that as the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus wasn't a very popular guy. In fact, his people would have viewed him probably as a traitor because as a chief tax collector, he didn't represent his people. He didn't represent the nation of Israel. He represented the enemy, the emperor, the authority that just occupied them, the authority that they were hoping Jesus came to banish and push out. But the chief tax collector wasn't just that. He wasn't just the one in charge of all these other people gathering taxes. The chief tax collector, in this case, Zacchaeus, was rich. I mean, so wealthy, right? It means, that word really does mean, it means that he had so many possessions that maybe he never had to work again. He had gathered so many things, so much wealth, so much riches that he probably didn't have to ever work again. And yet this was his role. 
I, uh, so my son's two and a half. He's not this tall. He's like this tall. <laughs> my son's two and a half. Um, and, and I've just started introducing uh, like cartoon kind of movies to see if he has the attention span and things that I used to watch when I was a kid, right? Um, not because like I'm exhausted from a baby or anything, but just, you know, it's, it's time. Um, but I was watching uh, Robin Hood the other day with him, kind of. Um, and, uh, it, you know, like the Fox, the cartoon Fox, you remember the Disney movie from the 70s? Like, um, and I realized for the first time exactly what the issue was. See, every one of us probably knows the reality that Robin Hood was um, robbing from the rich to give to the poor. And I think, again, in our modern culture, in the way that we, we kind of think of like the 1% even, or just like, you know, everybody that lives in a mansion or whatever, like all of these bankers on Wall Street. Uh, but the reality is, is that in the context in which that story was written about Robin Hood, the rich was like one family, right? In this regional feudal system, the rich is like one family and everybody else just kind of exists to serve that family. That's why over in England, there's so many different little castles and then the king has a big castle. And so taxes, taxes were literally just pulling all of the wealth and resources out of a region, again, to pool it into uh, the feudal Lord and then from the Lord to the King. And then the King was the wealthiest person in the world. And so when Robin Hood is, is stealing from the rich, really what he's doing is he's stealing tax money. See, that's the reality of Zacchaeus too is that he made his wealth not from some sort of pension or, uh, or from some sort of wage that the Roman government would give him. He made his wealth because as he collected taxes, he would collect a little bit more in order to put into his own pocket. And maybe if this person seemed like they had a little bit uh, more successful crop this year, he could collect a little bit more from them. They sold a little bit more oil, he'd collect a little bit more from them. Until ultimately he's continuing to, to, to line his pockets with wealth as he collects taxes for the Roman government, he gives them what they've asked for and everything else he puts into his own coffers. I don't think Zacchaeus was well-liked. I don't think people would have been excited to see him around town, at least not everybody. He was the chief tax collector, the trader. He was the, the thief who would take from them when they would have success in life. He was the one who was making himself wealthy and rich at their own expense. The third thing we learned about Zacchaeus in the first couple of verses is that he's short. There's a couple of reasons that we might see that theologically, but I think the biggest reason is this. Zacchaeus was so curious about who Jesus was that he wasn't gonna let anything stop him when he wanted to go and see him. And so he comes and there's this crowd gathered. Remember, Jesus is a, a name that people are starting to recognize. There's this ministry, this rabbi that has gathered followers and, and Zacchaeus goes in and, he, and he's trying to push his way through the crowd and he just can't. His stature just won't allow him to push him, himself into the front. And so what he does is he sees a tree down the road. He runs down and he climbs up a tree just so that he could see. And the miraculous thing is that Jesus sees him. And who is Jesus? It's his next house guest. Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. And then the story kind of takes a quick jump because Zacchaeus climbs down the tree. He hurries over to Jesus. And I don't know if this happens in Zacchaeus' house or if it happens immediately on the road, but something about being in the presence of that mercy and grace, something about Jesus pointing him out, something about the way that Jesus received him and even invites him to receive Jesus changes him. We see this transformation in Zacchaeus in which all of a sudden he has this experience 
where he starts to repent. And not just say like, I'm so sorry, like I've been stealing from people, but, but he says everything I have, take, take half of it, take half and just give it to the poor, right? Everything that I have, just, just divide it and just this part, I don't even need it. And then everything else that I have left, if I've wronged anybody, I'm gonna repay, I'm gonna give it back. I'm gonna just fourfold this, this shocking act of repentance amidst the grace that he's experienced through Jesus. That's the story of redemption and salvation that we see in this passage. In fact, Jesus responds to this act of of repentance and he says, today there is salvation in this household. You are a son of Abraham. In other words, Zacchaeus, the traitor tax collector, no, you are still among God's people. You are with us. You are in this kingdom. For Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Now, when I'm preparing for a sermon, or honestly, when I'm just reading scripture for myself, I look at stories like this and I try to see uh, understanding that when we read a passage, we read it through the lens of our own lives, right? We try to do our best to understand maybe the context, what's happened before, what's happened after, what other things has Jesus taught? But at the end of the day, we also start to recall things that are going on right now. Or how am I feeling? What am, I, what am I experiencing? What are my needs in life? And how can I apply this passage to me? And, and the challenge is when I'm preaching is it's not just about me, right? I need this to impact your lives. And so as I was thinking about it, there are really three ways that I think that we could respond to this passage. Uh, and maybe there's more, but these are the three that really stood out to me. And so the first one that I wanna walk us through uh, is this, is uh, we can respond to this passage with either skepticism, criticism, or amnesia. And the first is this, skepticism. And so the skeptic thinks God won't have them. The skeptic thinks God won't have them. Here's what that looks like. In, in this passage, we see this radical story in which Jesus points to a sinner, right? That's the response of the crowd around him. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come, Come and, and, and be, uh, be my host. Come and, and share a meal with me. In a culture where hospitality is this act of friendship and grace and love, in a culture where hospitality is, is tantamount to whom you associate with, your very identity. Come, Zacchaeus, let me share a meal with you. There's this, this incredible act of love and redemption ultimately that we see. And if the skeptic reads this passage and probably think something like this. That's amazing. God is good. And, and, and really, that's a great story of, of redemption. That's a great story of grace. But I see, you don't know who I am. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the things that I've experienced, the pain that I've suffered, the, the hurt that I've caused others, the weight of the guilt and shame that I carry. This is a great story for everyone else in this room, but for me, it's not for me. You just don't understand. I don't even know why I'm here this morning because there's no way that God has a place for me. And on one hand, you're right. I don't know you. 
If we haven't had the opportunity to sit down over coffee or for you to come by my office and to share some of those things that you've experienced, to confess some of those things that you've done, to talk with me about the things that you're walking through in life right now, I don't know you enough to tell you that God loves you. But what I do know from this passage is that he does. As Zacchaeus climbs up that tree and Jesus walks past him, Jesus doesn't say, hey, you in the tree, come over here. Who are you? What's your life like? Oh, you have a nice house. Do you want to host me for dinner? That's not the story. Jesus walks by, he points to him and he says, Zacchaeus, he knows him by name. He says, come, I must reside with you. I must be with you today. See, the reality is of this story is that for the skeptic, you're uncertain, you're, un, you're just unclear, you're, you're pretty positive maybe even that God does not have a place for you in his kingdom, in his family, in this church. But that's not the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus might've felt that way, but when Jesus points him out and calls him by name, he hurries down that tree and he runs to him. He receives that invitation. He says, I'll, I'll lay it out. Let's do a buffet. I've got it covered. Let's go. You probably saw it on your way in this morning, but on the wall right here behind on the other side in the lobby, it says, we are imperfect people who have been moved by the perfect love of Jesus. Right? That's not just a cute saying that we put on tote bags or t-shirts. Like that is something that we believe at the very core of who we are. Right? Our church is founded upon the fact that the gospel gives us a hope a hope that God who created us in his image, whom we rebelled against in our sin, whom we've denied and refused and, and tried to run away from continues to love us so much that he would send his son for us and, and bring us a hope and transformation. And that in his resurrection, we also can have new life. And that life is an expression of love that continues to change us. And that invitation is not an invitation to the perfect. It's an invitation to the imperfect an invitation to the sinner. It's an invitation to you. God has a place for you. But maybe that's not you. Maybe you're not the skeptic. Maybe you're the critic. See, another way we can read this passage is, is through a lens of criticism. And here's what the critic doesn't do. The critic doesn't read this passage or sit in this service and think, man, how did Jesus forgive Zacchaeus? I mean, how could he do that? That's ridiculous. It says it right there in the verse. He was a sinner. That's not what the critic does. What the critic does instead is this, sits here and says, yes, God is good. God is gracious. God is merciful and loving. And Zacchaeus was forgiven and I've been forgiven. And then they go home. And as they drive by their neighbors playing in their yard, they think, man, they skipped church again. What are they doing with their lives? And they go to work on Monday morning. And they listen to someone who went to brunch on Sundays and they're frustrated about that. And, and they're angry why no one will join them in their prayer meeting. And, and there are all kinds of other little frustrations that they feel like this is the way to follow Jesus. Why won't anybody else do it with me? The critic builds walls to keep everybody else out. Ultimately, the critic thinks that God is lucky to have them. And as they continue to try to live that out, they create this sense at which more and more, they're the only ones doing it right. More and more, they're the only ones who really follow Jesus. They're the only ones who really believe. 
The problem with that is when you start to build walls to keep everyone else out, you end up alone. Maybe that's you and you haven't even realized it. And the last is this, and I think, honestly, this is the temptation for most of us. If we're not skeptical, if we're not critical, we can just respond to this story with amnesia. This can be a story from Sunday school that we heard and that song that we used to sing or something. He's like a wee little man. I don't even know what that has to do with this. But we read this story. We think, yeah, God, you know, he's forgiving. Jesus is gracious. He's loving. And this was so cool. Like Zacchaeus, he's, you know, he's, he's this tax collector, but he has his life changed. And that's amazing. And we hear it and, and we think, yeah, you know, I remember that. Like, I remember I was 12 or I was 22 or I was 62 and, and I, just, I heard the gospel and I believed and, you know, I got baptized and I go to church on Sundays and I give and I even serve sometimes and, you know, I, I'm, I'm good. Like, that's, that's kind of it, right? Like, that's the grace of God. Zacchaeus did his thing. He kind of made, you know, repentance and, and gave away some stuff. And then you just kind of like coast into eternity. You're saved, That's not the message of the gospel. Jesus didn't come just to to give us like a get out of hell free card. Jesus came to give us new life. See, it's it's a message throughout the whole Old Testament. The the people that we've been highlighting even uh, in this series this summer, they're surrounded by circumstances where, where God is trying to convince his people to remember him. They've forgotten the God who's rescued them out of Egypt. They've forgotten the God who's delivered them into the promised land. They've forgotten the God who's provided for them and protected them and given them victory in battle and and given them provision for their families and even blessed their families to grow. And they've forgotten the God who they worship and they've been distracted. They've been distracted by politicians and emperors and kings. They've been distracted by other gods and they've been distracted by women and wealth. They've been distracted by so many other things that they've forgotten the God who loves them. And so his cry His cry in stories from David to the prophets is to remember me. Remember the God who rescued you. Remember the God who saved you. Remember what I've done for you. And in that remembrance, have hope for what I will do for you in the future. In that remembrance, have hope that I am still at work. We just sang it in the song, even when we can't see it, God is at work. And yet we can read this passage and we can think, you know, that's great. Like that was good. And now I'm just kind of in this season where I, this is just life, I guess. And it's 10 or 20 or 40 more years like this. So I better make some money and have some vacations and vote for the right person, I guess. But that's not the message of Zacchaeus for us. We are called to remember who God is. We are called to remember who we are as his people. A few nights ago, uh, Ellie woke up and, you know, 3 a.m., she's amazingly cute. You saw the pictures, right? Like easily top 10 in the church. Um, <laughs> fight me, it's true. <laughs> um, and uh, at the same time, when she wakes up at like 3 a.m., she can cry like a banshee, right? Like, like I mean, I'm dead asleep for like probably 30 minutes, I don't know. Uh, and Lauren does her thing. She comforts her and she feeds her. And then I'm trying to be helpful and supportive. And so I take her and I'm, I'm holding her and I'm trying all the different positions. And, and I have the patience of about like five minutes of the banshee, right? And so I'm trying everything I can. So I just start to sing. Uh, and, and this is true. 
it's not like a pastor thing, but I just, I sing worship songs because I think I just know them the best. The truth is, I don't know them like any of the team on here though, because I'm just singing like broken bridges and like a chorus from this song and like maybe the first verse of this song. I'm like, can't Google it on my phone because my hands are full. Um, and, and the reality is I start just singing these songs and, and because I'm getting ready for the sermon, I'm thinking about Zacchaeus and I'm thinking about God's grace and, and I am thinking about songs and I'm thinking about songs in all kinds of different stages of my life. Right? And I start to realize like I'm, I'm singing these songs that like, you know, I, I've been singing to Benji since he was born. And then uh, I start to kind of dig a little bit deeper into my repertoire. So I'm just getting like two or three words out from some of these songs maybe. But, um, and, and I start to remember the seasons that I started to hear these songs more. Maybe for the first time, maybe the seasons that I sang them a lot. And some of them are like I was 13 back in those mission trip days that I was, uh, you know, with the youth group that I was in youth group with and, and, and serving. And in those evenings singing songs from the 90s that like, we'll never sing on a Sunday morning. But they had an impact on me. And in that season, I'm, I'm beginning to experience this grace that, that God is showing me at that point and calling me to follow him and, and shaping my heart and, and helping me to understand who he is. And then fast forward and I'm, I'm singing other songs and I'm starting to realize like there's seasons where I'm like 19 years old and I'm starting to think about ministry. I'm thinking about what do I wanna do with my life? What do I wanna be when I grow up, right? And, and, and I start to think about the pastor and I start to think about preaching and, and, and I'm singing songs that were at that time just popular, but they have this, this time capsule of, a, of an impact in my life. And I'm singing about songs when, when Benji was born or when I got married and, and thinking about the type of husband I wanna be, the type of father I wanna be. And, and in the moment, I began to realize that God's grace is not something that Zacchaeus just experiences in the road. It's not something that we just point to back in the history. Like I was saved in June 19th. It's something that God continues to work in us. And these songs, these songs for me were just reminders of what God had done in these different seasons, at these different times. That he was gracious to me then and he is continuing to be gracious to me now. And I need him. I desperately need him. I wanna be the type of father, the type of husband, the type of pastor that my life impacts others. The influence, the transformation that I experience in Jesus, I want others to experience that. And if I close off, if I think I'm good, or if I'm too fearful to step forward into what God's calling me to, or if I just let amnesia overcome me and just kind of back away and call it a day, that's not gonna happen. But if I remember God, if I remember what he's done, I can have confidence to keep moving forward, to understand that the gospel continues to have an impact in my heart and in my life. And others will begin to experience that too around me. So today we have an opportunity to remember together. As we celebrate the gospel, the love of Jesus, we have an opportunity to take communion, an opportunity that Jesus gave us himself, an institution that he's given us as a church to remember his death and resurrection the sacrifice that he made on a cross. So I'm gonna invite the team up and the ushers up to uh, go ahead and get ready to pass the elements. Uh, and as they do, would you pray with me? <laughs> Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful. I'm grateful for the things that you've done in my life to make me the man that I am today. And God, I'm already grateful to know that that is not the man that I'm ultimately going to be if I follow you, but I'm gonna be a far different man created in your image. God, I pray that you would help to encourage everyone here this morning that as we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, that we have found forgiveness, that we have found peace, that we have found hope, and we can find transformation through that.
God, you love us. God, you care for us. You see us and you know us, whether we are skeptical, critical, or just forgetful. God, we ask that you would help us to know and to remember who you are, to remember what you've done for us, to remember who we were, and to look ahead to where you're making us and and forming us individually and as one body in this church community. God, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.